1: This week, my guest is Brian Kugelman. He's a senior scientist with Alterspark. Senior scientist, Brian, that sounds really fancy.
2: Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure, Tim.
1: Uh, Well, so for our listeners, tell us a little bit of what you actually do uh, and uh, and your day-to-day job.
2: It changes over time. I started off many years ago doing frontline digital campaigning work. Did this for several years, uh, working with the United Nations running global campaigns, then spent a while doing a doctorate on the science of behavior change. After I started evaluating large scale social change campaigns, aligned to find out if they're working or not, then started moving into Direct marketing and optimization of campaigns, and now I more or less just pretty much teach because I've had uh, so, you know so so much demand I've been able to just focus on helping others instead of doing as much frontline work.
1: Well, fantastic! But it sounds like you had uh, quite the arc and ended up on the dark side of actually using the powers of persuasion to sell crap to people.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I try, I try to avoid that because I, you know, I normally work. Well, traditionally, I work with nonprofits, and I do a lot with the United Nations. Once in a while, but uh, the same tactics that I've always used to promote social causes are also used to sell people. You know, products and, you know, if they're good products that are helpful, that's fine. But sometimes, <laughs> yeah, the technique can be used to sell people junk
1: <laughs> okay. uh, and well, unhealthy
2: lifestyle. Well, I try to stay that. away from that. <laughs> um,
1: well, yeah. So if you want behavior change, it's stop smoking, not increase your smoking, right? That kind of stuff. Uh, no, so uh, joking aside, uh, so one of the you know things that is just never ceases to amaze me is how – ignorant online marketers are about just the basics of the brain, evolutionary biology, neurochemistry. I mean, it sounds like a bizarre thing for them to study, but in a way, it's like they're focused on the technology and not on the operating system on which all of that is supposed to function, influencing the human brain. So let's talk about some brain basics. What has some of the latest neuroscience research thrown out there that that can be useful for online marketers?
2: Yeah, well, uh, one area where I've been putting my attention lately is on the, the neurochemical factors in motivation. And specifically, I've been mapping out some pretty old models. I um, you know, started with Maslow in the 1950s, but, you know, around that time now, but going back maybe 100,000 to 200,000 years ago are perspectives from evolutionary psychology, look at the brain. And I've been very actually interested in actually one model has completely transformed my thinking. And it's my scholar, uh, Kendrick and others who took a look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of motivational psychology and can recontextualize these needs. And what I've been doing is looking at the underlying neurochemical factors that underpin the model.
1: Okay, well, so just kind of if we look at a high level, and this might be my layman's understanding, so correct me if I go way off track, but essentially, you know, our brain for survival tries to do more of things that it thinks are going to help it survive and get away from things that it thinks threaten its survival or Mm well-being. So we basically have the reptilian brain underneath it all that's spitting out cortisol and says run away or fight or those kinds of things. And then we have the mammalian brain, which adds this mix of, uh, I guess, positive motivating chemicals, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So what are uh, some of the chemicals that, you know, kind of squirt through our brain with any regularity that, that motivate us?
2: Yeah, well, you you mentioned the the first one. So with cortisol, which is the stress hormone, you know, when when the core factors in surviving as a human, you know, it raises our awareness. It makes us wake up when there's like a threat or something that says, you know, you're not going to meet a survival need or even worse, you know, you're specifically threatened and now you're you're really in trouble. So cortisol, um, it leads to light awareness, to consciousness and at some point it can start leading into high levels of stress and anxiety when it gets too much. So I think early stage we often use that as a basis for loss aversion strategies where you try and you scare someone into you know taking action. And of course, uh, we also use this for web design because we don't want to stress out our users. Like every time people encounter broken pages and profile errors, and you know, or they have to wrestle with your
1: navigation or understand what your labels mean, right? What your button says—those kinds of things are oh, all yeah. cause micro
2: stress. Yep, and it all banks up, it leads to greater and greater anxiety. And the, the thing with cortisol is it, it stays in your system unless you go for a run or interact with some people or have, you know, good social experience or, or, you know, maybe even going out and having a good laugh. You know, I read one paper that arguing that humor is a good way of dealing with it, so.
1: Yeah, and cortisol seems to circulate for a much longer time frame, so there's traces of it, I understand, for a period of days after whatever triggered it in some cases, whereas most of the positive chemicals are gone within a minute or a few minutes.
2: Yeah, you've got a quick reward. And, you know, with cortisol, you know, the problem is that it... And doesn't just bank up, but it eventually starts having negative impacts on a person's health. Normally, you shouldn't design the technology that leads to the point where you're causing high levels of anxiety in a person. But it is important to know that you are contributing to the same factors with, like, you know, bad user experience, with like frustrating design patterns, with unintuitive design, by like breaking conventions by offering things that you can't deliver, by designing systems that trap users, by making them <laughs> think that they might have been the victim of fraud for dark patterns. There, you know, there's all sorts of ways of triggering it.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's amazing that we're, most people don't think of sitting in front of a web browser as a stressful experience, but cortisol does kick in, and you, you, you get your respiration goes up, you know, your fight or flight, instincts kick in, your foot starts tapping, you know, maybe unperceptibly to you, but there are physical reactions to anxiety caused by sitting in front of a web browser.
2: Even dealing with disinformation in general, so you know, dealing with like an inbox that's exploding uh, you can't keep on top of Dealing with ambiguous situations, so, uh, you know, a lot of really bad design, you know, it leaves the user thinking, well, what does this button do, and is this what I need? And for trivial interaction, it doesn't matter as much, but say someone's sending out a big marketing campaign, and they know that clicking on the wrong button could be very embarrassing, potentially. So if you don't have very clear design, you're actually putting person under quite a lot of pressure uh, <laughs> with ambiguity. You know, I, I love uh, one of the jokes that uh, MailChimp does when you're thinking of sending out your campaign as a last step. They have a picture of the monkey about to push on the button and they're shaking and there's sweat coming off it and it's playing on the nervousness that people have. But they also do a good job of reassuring you it's all going to be okay. <laughs> uh, so,
1: that you're not so that monkey.
2: <laughs> oh, sorry?
1: <laughs> that, that you're not that monkey, hopefully.
2: Yeah, hopefully if you, uh... Take their advice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, but let, before we go to our first commercial break, let's kind of sum up the quickest ways we can, I mean, so cortisol is something to be minimized. So just a couple of quick tips for how to do that when you're on a landing page.
2: Yeah. We can also maybe talk about we want to minimize it, but we also do want to use it strategically at some point.
1: We'll come back to that in after terms the break, of, but, but in terms of just like good design okay. and getting out of people's way, how would we do that?
2: Yeah, so I, I think the, the first thing is to follow conventions, not in the sense of jumping on the bandwagon and just doing things because other people do, but following conventions because we know our target audience has already been taught how to interact with you a know, webpage in a certain way, and so we can speed up their cognitive process and have them asking less questions about is it this or that. So, people know where to look, they can quickly interact. So okay, that, so let me, let me see, you know, kind
1: of just put that into a, a kind of more practical term. So, this would be you know, basically don't piss into the wind or reinvent the wheel. You know, we know how to use certain <laughs> websites, we know how to use navigation bars, we know where the checkout cart is in an e commerce website in the upper right, hopefully. So, don't try to make something unique or different just for being different because that's going to cause us stress while we evaluate it and figure out what it means.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: We're going to be back in uh, in two minutes after a word from our sponsors and continue our conversation about the strategic uses of cortisol.
0: More LPO landing page optimization in just a moment.
3: Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click And it's live in real time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me.
0: Welcome back to LPO, Landing Page Optimization, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Tim Ash,
1: and we're back. This is your host Tim Ash with LPO, Landing Page Optimization. This week, my guest is Brian Kugelman, Senior Scientist at AlterSpark, and we're talking neurochemistry, Brian. So before the break, we were talking about kind of stress and cortisol, not necessarily being a bad thing. What do you mean by strategic uses of cortisol?
2: Cortisol wakes. People often says like you know there's a time you have to take action and you know that's not a bad thing because it's it's a motivator and it's a very good motivator because when you're facing a threatening situation if you take care of it uh, you're going to be in a better state and so so cortisol is one of the key motivators and so we can also use it strategically to get people to take action but you know we talked earlier about the negative impacts we or or we don't want to like trigger a negative but. In its, you know, healthy state, we can use it for loss aversion tactics to let people know, look, you know, you're going to miss out if you don't act in time. And so two common techniques that I think are, you know, fairly well known in the conversion rate optimization field are dealing with rare availability of something. So, you know, not having as much of an abundance of something. So people know they have to compete, otherwise they might lose out. And so the stress there is that if you don't act, you're gonna lose out on the opportunity because there's just not that many units, or we have limited time where someone has to act before a certain deadline. And so
1: yeah, and the, yeah, those are these. both. So both of those can be very powerful, and sometimes even this doesn't have to be physical or tangible goods. It can be access to information. First two hundred people to do this get this extra bonus ebook, but if you're not one of those people, you're not going to get that. Or you know, kind of meta information about the purchase or the product or the event or whatever the case may be, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Any, anything where you know, what, hey, I'm going to lose out. So there, you know, there's a loss involved with the equation. We'll trigger this response where someone says, oh, I have to act now before uh, I miss out.
1: Now, I know this is a broad generalization, but basically my understanding is that loss aversion or pain avoidance is twice as powerful a motivator generally than, you know, I'm going to win the lottery tomorrow, any kind of positive stuff. Is that what you're, you found as well?
2: Yeah, well, I've seen uh, scientific papers by behavioral economists that uh, show that um, and I think that's fairly well researched and known. There's different numbers and one nice thing about behavioral economist studies is they, they do it with money so they they can put an actual sort of figure on it. But as a rule of thumb, generally, loss aversion is more effective than incentives. But I have my own theories about where it applies and where it doesn't apply.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about that in a minute, but I just want to and kind of explore it. So, but what do you say to the marketers and I've actually faced this situation several times where they say, "Well, we're a positive brand, we're a happy brand. We're not going to yeah. push that, you know, negativity button." That's quote-unquote off-brand for us. What do you say to them?
2: You know what? I've heard that my entire career. I started off doing frontline uh, communications and 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 my work was a bit more in the environment and health, and I got into the private sector work later on in life. But this, yeah, this was always a convention. Never use negative messaging. Everything always has to be positive. And, you know, now I'm much more experienced not just as a scientist, but also practitioner. And I know these techniques work and they work very well. It's just that. A lot of people don't understand how to use negative messaging, and so I think they're just being overly cautious, and perhaps they themselves are too loss-averse uh, themselves to use loss-aversion effectively.
1: <laughs> That's ironic.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's different research that says when you should use negative versus positive messaging.
1: How can you tell when you should use it, potentially? Yeah.
2: Uh, at least in the area of health, the work of Bochaska gives a lot of advice on when to use negative versus positive change. And so this comes specifically from health. But to get someone to, say, quit smoking or, you know, stop being an alcoholic and, you know, trying to change their life, you generally don't start by telling someone, oh, it's going to be great when you quit and, when you, you know, make the change. So generally they start a bit more on the negatives about, you know, all the bad things that a person is trying to avoid, such as, you know, uh, having its addictive habits, you know, possibly having you know, negative social impacts on your family, and the idea is that you shock someone with the negatives, and as they start moving towards learning the skills, that's when you you invert and you switch over to positive. Uh, okay, so this is very similar
1: for- to kind of you know interventions for drug addicts or gamblers or whatever that that sort of idea where you basically, or even in the selling world, there's a book called Spin Selling by Neil Rackham, and one of the things he talks about is essentially mm-hmm. rubbing salt salt into the wound so someone can see the full negative implications of their current situation and they're motivated mm-hmm. to act. Uh, Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, like you, you shock a person. Also, like in their health, it's a little more uh, existential and soul searching. So it's like you totally want to rub salt into the wounds and have someone like you shock them and they're waking up and you say, look, you've got some serious problems and you're screwing up your life. Is this really how you want it to go? And when someone actually feels the full emotional impact of that, which can take a while because people are generally resistant, like they don't feel the full emotional impact because they're in complete denial and they'll rationalize everything to the point where you can't even get through. But what, you know, once you can start triggering that wake up moment, now someone is possibly in a moment where they can make a change.
1: So again, this negative messaging then we could be seen as just describing the current situation, fleshed out with all of its implications. Right? It's not like you, you know, you you suck unless you buy our stuff. That's not the point. It's <laughs> it's, it's more about yeah. is this you? Do you recognize yourself? Do you see this in your life? Is this something that you, you know you're unhappy about? You know, and just kind of playing out all of those paths, right?
2: Yeah. So. It, Absolutely, so the idea is not to be literal, to degrade, to, you know, insult a person, but it's to let them know the full weight of the impact of, you know, their decision or their decision not to act, because sometimes there's negative response when we don't take action.
1: Right. Okay. Well, you know, we've focused a lot on the negative. And like we said, that seems to be a more effective motivator. Let's spend a little time talking about the positives. So let's just quickly list the happy motivating chemicals, the ones that make us move for positive reasons.
2: Yeah. So... The number one chemical there is going to be dopamine, and there are a few others, but dopamine is the primary reward chemical that we experience, and it's released in anticipation of a reward. So yeah, you know how we humans are endlessly dissatisfied, like we're always getting excited about the next big thing, and there's so much hype, and oh, this is going to be great for me. And then once we get something, we're like, oh, I don't know about that. We want something else. So, <laughs> so dopamine is what is released when we see anticipation of a reward. And as we learn to go towards things that we see as potentially rewarding and actually find that they do deliver on the results, thus we have like the training uh, or shaping process where people iteratively learn how to do things slowly over time. And maybe one thing I can add is I think of a value prop and benefits as largely dopamine inducing chemicals and a few others in there. But, you know, people have different views on what a value proposition is. And I always take a value proposition as a promise that someone is going to meet a survival need. And if you hit the mark, Someone should read it and actually, you know, truly get excited to think, you know what? This is something I really want. And you don't trigger dopamine. You're probably not producing a good value prop.
1: Yeah, so basically what we're saying is, okay, so very important distinctions before we go into our break, that the dopamine is not the payoff itself. It's the anticipation of the payoff. I think the founding fathers in the U.S. wrote into the Declaration of Independence a clause about the pursuit of happiness. That's all we get is the pursuit of it. We're not going to get happiness because that IV drip of dopamine stops after a couple of minutes, right?
2: Yeah, I think you have nailed it. That's a brilliant example.
1: All right. Well, um, the pursuit,
2: the, but not
1: pursuit, but not the guarantee of happiness. That's what you get, <laughs> folks. All right. So we'll be, after we come back from our final break, uh, we're going to explore Brian's creative side, or rather, what he wishes he had done for a living instead of being a scientist. We'll be back in two minutes after a word from our sponsor.
0: More LPO landing page optimization in just a moment. Internet Marketing,
3: Inc. designs fully integrated digital programs that improve brand experiences and grow businesses through valuable data insights and strategy across all types of media. Paid, owned, and earned. Their digital experts nimbly adapt strategy by providing you a comprehensive view of your brand's online audience and program performance. If you are looking for a data-driven approach to online marketing and advertising, call Internet Marketing, Inc. today. At 866 563 0620 or visit Internet com. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing Ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at InternetMarketingNinjas.com.
2: Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs.
3: Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now.
0: Welcome back to LPO, Landing Page Optimization, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Tim Ash. And
1: we're back. This is your host, Tim Ash, with LPO, Landing Page Optimization. This week, my guest is Brian Kugelman, the Senior Scientist at Alterspart. Brian, you wanted a different kind of career, a drummer, I understand, before this whole science thing happened. I guess you wanted to make a little money, too, and get some girls, because <laughs> I understand the drummers don't. It's the guitar players, isn't it?
2: Yeah, but well, actually, maybe uh, being a musician would have been better than going to research Yeah, oh Yes, when I was younger, I absolutely wanted to be a drummer. My grandfather was a professional swing drummer, and so uh, I was forced to take lessons against my will as a child. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was able to read notes, and I could teach myself how to drum, and uh, I secretly had to start taking rock drumming classes uh, because the big band drumming just was not cool at the time. Mm. Yeah, Um, I wanted wanted to make it. For about three years, I was practicing like three hours a day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's pretty intense dedication. It looks like you've channeled that into other parts of your life. So when you say, okay, dopamine is something that helps us move towards goals that enhance our survival perspective. So what are some of those basic motivations that we're inclined to move towards? What does survival mean? Obviously, we don't mean, literally mean the knife edge of survival like in our hunter-gatherer days. So what is what kinds of pseudo-survival needs uh, do we think we're meeting in civilized society?
2: Okay, so um, I would say, there's, there's a few that are very powerful, but one of the biggies is our social need. So that's our need to connect with other people, um, and... On the flip side of that is the need to not feel lonely or disassociated or outcast or rejected from the group. So anything that helps us connect to other people is going to be motivating and thus the rise of social media, which largely feeds into that human need.
1: Yeah. So basically, you know, at a mammalian level, going back a couple of hundred million years, yeah, you know, we learned that survival as a group uh, has benefits. So attachment to the group is important. Like you say, being outside of the group is a very dangerous place to be. So even if your bridge club or your stamp collecting circle, it, it doesn't really have survival value. Belonging to any group does.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's why you know what. You, you know, you could go out with almost any group of people and connect socially, and people, you know, they talk about how great it is, and they have had such a good time, and why don't we do this more often? It's what are the core human needs, and it's uh, something, you know, it varies from person to person. Some people are a little more internally focused, others uh, a bit more externally focused, but nonetheless, it's a need, but also there's a flip side. So everything that drives us also has, you know, certain negative states, and that's the desire to not be, you know, cut off from the group and isolated. You know, one of the worst punishments they even give in prison, at least in North America, is solitary confinement.
1: Yeah, it's it's really kind of <laughs> literally inhuman and in mammalian too. Uh, no mammal likes that kind of <laughs> solitude. Yeah, in fact, there was a there's a penitentiary in Philadelphia, and the whole premise of it was that people are bad because of bad influences. So if you you leave them alone for 24 hours a day, then they return to their basic goodness. That was a huge failure. That premise doesn't work. That's where the word penitentiary comes from, penitence and being by yourself. Mm-hmm. So what is another kind of human need that you say is fairly universal that would be motivated by dopamine?
2: Yeah, so dopamine uh, would give payouts when we see um – the social rewards. another area where, you know, dopamine and other factors are coming in are social status needs and so this is uh, the part of human behavior where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others, where we're thinking in hierarchical terms, we're worrying about keeping up with the Joneses, where you meet someone and you do something called social comparison where you say, where am I compared to them in the hierarchy? Also, you know, where we feel we've been respected and shown, you know, like the due honor in a different situations or on the flip side to all of this are situations where we feel we're being demeaned or put down, not treated with quite the right level of respect.
1: So this is people. a this is a re- relative status within the pecking order. So that's really important. So even the smallest things can affect this. So oh, you know, look, you know, that guy got his fiance a bigger diamond ring. So <laughs> that's that's a you know, but but even uh, you know, just sitting a little closer to the stove at the ski lodge, you know, is is a form of status you could say. So these things happen on a lot of different levels, not necessarily the obvious ones, right?
2: Oh, yeah, and, and they get tied into different cultures and expressed in different ways. Uh, but nonetheless, these small little subtleties translate into pecking order. And so, you know, if you travel around the world, you know, there'll be status markers that you'll think are maybe ridiculous and who would care about that. But, you know, you spend a bit of time and you see how everyone interacts with it. And I think eventually they start to uh, carry over.
1: Okay, so that's one thing you can learn cross-culturally and perhaps our final word for today, which is that we care about being in groups, and within those groups, we care about the pecking order. How that's expressed differs, but as bizarre as some cultural constructs seem to us, the basic human needs for inclusion and status within the group are, are very, very powerful motivators. So, uh, Brian, I want to thank you for being on the program.
2: My pleasure.
1: And loyal listeners, we'll see you on the flip side.